0: Your new book, Breaking the Cycle, is such a great, it's such an timely, like an important topic, you know, to be bringing forward right now for people. Like, what was it that made you select that as what you're going to write your book about?
1: Well, you know, I had been talking about um, breaking cycles and intergenerational trauma for a number of years, and it, it trauma is my core area of focus, and the work inside of the therapy room, as we say, um, had always had all these layers kind of attached to it. So I was already doing that work specifically in my work anyways. And, um, you know, I the more that I spoke to colleagues, to people that I connected with on social media, to my own clients, to my family even, and even when I had to have conversations with myself, um, I thought there is no one place where we can comprehensively say we have some sort of a roadmap that at least we can utilize as a guidebook to help us dig into the layers in a way that feels accessible, um, tangible, sustainable, and, and perhaps, um, hopefully, you know, life changing in some way, because I think people typically need a lot of therapy sessions to even get into the layers of the, the details that I cover, like in the book. And I, my hope is that, you know, I see that we're in a global mental health crisis. And a lot of us are hurting. And I think, you know, we need these tools now. So I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful that I get an opportunity to write this book and to, you know, have it out into the world.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so I'd love to hear your description of generational trauma, because I think it's something that everyone experiences, whether they realize it or not, but I think just having you shape it up would be really valuable for people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So intergenerational trauma is actually very unique in that it is the only type of trauma that's handed down our family line. So it's a very unique type of experience that we tend to have because it's at the intersection of our biology and our psychology. And what I mean by that is that from a biological standpoint, we actually have um, uh, certain ways in which genetically we inherit specific genetic markers that can actually be representative of vulnerabilities to stress and trauma. And that comes from our parents, grandparents, and so on then um, when we're born, we actually, you know, then start experiencing the world. And that's our psychology. So, you know, we were born, we have a, a, a connection to a caregiver or lack thereof uh, disruption in our care or a care that is nurturing and foundational to our emotional well-being. We can have, you know, kind of like Any of those variations right and and that can already set up the ways in which we start developing a nervous system that is either going to be feeling settled and an attachment style that's actually going to connect with the person that's in front of us that's our caregiver or one that's actually going to feel unsettled and insecure as we call it and You know, beyond that, then life hits, right? Like a lot of other things happen in life. We can be bullied in school. We can enter toxic relationships and a host of other things. We can experience oppression, a pandemic, right? And so when we have these emotional vulnerabilities that are already there and and embedded in us, and we match that with either lack of care and attunement or disruptions in our childhood or anything that happens in life thereafter it leaves an opportunity for there to be a burgeoning of trauma symptoms. And if we're talking about there being already a parent or set of parents and grandparents and people in our lives that were already in their own traumas and then there is a biological inheritance that we inherit, and then we experience our own trauma symptoms. We're already talking about two generations of people that are living with trauma, meaning that the trauma itself has become intergenerational.
0: Mm-hmm. So, people are experiencing not only a genetic inheritance of trauma, but also then just whatever is cooked up in their, you know, the conditioning which they experience in the earlier parts of their life.
1: Yeah. And it, and it becomes like, you know, even the biological part is very, very complex. Like there are a lot of other experiences that we have, um, before we're even conceived, actually two generations prior to even being conceived. And a lot of those experiences tend to also be part of the almost kind of like emotional foundation that we then are born into, and what I mean by that is that most people don't know that we actually develop as a tiny little microscopic, we call it precursor cell, inside of our parents' reproductive system when there's still an embryo inside of our grandmother's bellies. So we are living in three generations in one body at a given point in time, anywhere from, you know, a few months, a few weeks to to four months um, when our parents were still embryos. And so if our grandmothers on either side had experiences that felt traumatic or deeply stressful or longstanding stress, there is a high chance that a lot of those stress hormones that were flooding her bloodstream, making their way into the embryo that was your parent, would have eventually found those hormones would have found their way to also impacting you, that tiny microscopic cell.
0: Hmm. So how was this researched?
1: Well, it is, we, we have a lot of data on epigenetics, period. Like epigenetics is not a, um, it's not a new science. What is new in reference to epigenetics is, and, and for people who don't know, epigenetics is the um, science of how the environment impacts our genetic markers. So basically the ways in which genes turn on or off and, and actually almost kind of like modify in reference to their environment. So, you know, the tests themselves are done, you know, we really at that microscopic and genetic level. But we have known for a very long time in the sciences and in medicine that people can have predispositions to certain cancers. People can have predispositions to diabetes. And like there are genetic factors that run down a family line and that we have that understanding um, of that genetic tie. But more recently we have been then uncovering the ways in which this is happening at the emotional level as well. The ways in which, um, you know, there are genetic markers that have been identified as Turning on or off, and there are there are cortisol levels that have been specifically identified as being lower than what one would assume would be the natural level, and that though that is indicative of a person that is living with PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. So a lot of the the science is in the direction of uh, understanding the genetic elements of it, and understanding also like hormones that are connected to stress, like cortisol. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'd love to share, I'm kind of fascinated by epigenetics. I'd love to share this study I read about. I think it was one of the earliest ones I'm sure you're familiar with it, but just with the listeners, because it kind of is an interesting way to frame what we're talking about here. And uh, just if memory serves, it was basically a control study with laboratory rats and they put a lemon in the cage with the rats that was electrified And so, of course, every time that those rats went to eat that lemon, it would shock them. And then they had a control set of rats that had a lemon that was not electrified. And they found that whenever those rats gave birth, that the the babies of the rats that had the electrified lemon, whenever they put a lemon in the cage, they would not go near the lemon and exhibit like fear symptoms. And the rats in the other cage that um, had the lemon that was not electrified, those babies had no problem going towards the lemon and tasting it and so it's just an interesting kind of direct way to show that this f- even just a physical traumatic experience created some type of information that was encoded into the consciousness or the you know the instinctual uh programming of these rats which made them you know um conscious of the the electrification of the of the lemon if we think about you know that's so simple but if think about that in terms of human experience, it's so complicated, like people going through wars, you know what I mean? And yes. like famine and et cetera. I mean, just the countless, it's, it's wild to think about what we're all just being born with from simple predisposition, you know?
1: Yes, and I actually am so excited that I get to nerd out with you, (laughs) because uh, I'm excited that you're also like into studies that help us to find the correlations to the ways in which the the human body functions, and you know, a lot of the studies that we do have, yes, they are connected to to my studies, and some are actually have been done um, with individuals who are, you know, just people, humans. And there is another study that I found to be uh, very fascinating, and I went down my rabbit hole with that one, and actually that one I, I, in part, referenced to it in my book because I saw a version of that study come up in my work. And the study itself was, in essence, mirroring the very same one that you just mentioned, but this one actually... Try to help us understand the intergenerational uh through line of having had absorbed uh, some sort of a, an imprint around the sense of smell so when you know when the rats would actually like you know um smell cherry blossom which was the the actual scent that was utilized in the laboratory um their descendants, so like one and two generations removed of, of lab mice and, um, and, and rats, like they would actually not, it, not go near anything that would actually smell like cherry blossom and actually would have um, an adverse reaction. And I remember in my work that this felt to me initially, it felt like an overestimation because... I felt like, how could this even be until I started coming upon the studies and they started informing my thinking as a clinician, but I had a client who actually found the smell of coffee to be repulsive. And when we started digging and we worked for a number of years together, but we started digging through some of the layers of his family tree and we came upon one specific incident in which his grandfather had actually Um, suffered a beating by someone in, in a park. He actually got attacked. He survived. But the attacker actually had had a cup of coffee prior to attacking him. And that scent had actually become, in essence, imprinted in him. And even though his daughter wasn't yet born, one generation now removed, his daughter had actually hated coffee, could not stand the smell of it. And now third generation, my client, an adult now, could not tolerate coffee and the smell.
0: That's thought,
1: wild. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I and, and it just really brought to life, you know, what we find in these laboratory experiments um, that have these generational through lines. But it makes a lot of sense because think about triggers. Triggers are remembrances. And triggers are, you know, They're they're basically ignited either by our senses or by uh, some sort of an emotion, an internal experience that we have. If we feel shame, we remember a moment when we also had shame. However, if we smell the perfume of a person that treated us poorly, that's actually going to take us back to those moments when we were treated poorly and we start remembering. And Part of the reason why particularly smell has such a powerful uh, effect on our memory is because it has, which is the only scent that does this, the the only sense that does this, that um, it actually has a direct route to the limbic system of the brain, which is highly connected to our emotions. And so there's just so much of the science that really, when we start tying all the pieces together, help us to understand the complexity of this interweb of uh, intergenerational trauma, but it helps us to, to really absorb the data that we have in front of us with a clearer mind.
0: Hmm, that's really fascinating. And they, they better not teach this to kids in school because then little kids will be like, you know, <clears throat> they'll be like, you know, eat your broccoli. And the kids are like, look, I can't do it. You know, my great grandfather was beaten and robbed with a broccoli stock and I uh, have a traumatic response to this. Um, that is, you know, this is really funny is that something that, like, I love salmon or just fish in general, but specifically, like, every couple of times whenever I eat salmon, I have a weird like memory flash of like choking to death on a bone from salmon, but I don't I've never choked on one. And so I always think about epigenetics. I'm like, I wonder if someone like some, some, you know, great great-grandparent was like choked on a bone and almost died or something like that and it's like coded in my brain to be careful.
1: Well, you know, there is this um, other area. Like I always talk about generational resilience in conjunction with generational trauma for that reason, because we are also, it is said, I, although this, this area of study is a bit more, there's a, a lot of nuance and it's still fairly new, but we can even we can even map it back to some of the studies we've already referenced. But it is said that we are pre-programmed to also deal with the stressors that our ancestors dealt with, and, and that even happens at a biological level. And, and so there are sometimes remnants that are left inside of our body memory to prepare us for circumstances that they already had to go through, like potentially choking, you know, on a fishbowl. Yeah,
0: fascinating, fascinating. Okay, so it, let's say we have all this information and this understanding of kind of how we inherit some of these things. Now, what do we do with that, like here and now? to make our lives better? Mm-hmm.
1: It's um, it's a set of data, and I call it data because I, I can appreciate us being like many researchers of our own lives, but it's a, a set of data that we can actually collect for ourselves to give us an impression of especially some of the subconscious behaviors and, and thoughts and emotions that we tend to carry around that very often either don't belong to us or we're just learned responses from the homes that we come from. And we haven't had an opportunity to contest them, unlearn them primarily because we have seen it as just the norm. Um, And many of us see these things as the norm subconsciously, don't contest it, but we're still hurting. And that's really kind of, I think where the work really comes in and helps us to, to, Unearth the different patterns that have existed in our family line and to then start the disrupting process. Like, if I understand that through my family, there have been a number of people that have had people pleasing qualities and they have defaulted to that fawn response, is, you know, in essence, what we call it the fawn, five flight freezer fawn. If they're a a fauner and and that just happens to be, you know, their baseline, and they taught that to their child and their child, you know, kind of absorbed that very same trauma response. And now you, the grandchild have also absorbed that or absorbed some other kind of trauma response that, you know, is is also uh, a remnant of the hurt that has existed in your family line, but you just don't want to suffer anymore. And you also don't want to see them suffer anymore. Then you have to really go back to the root and, and look at the full family picture and map out your family tree and say, okay, these are the places where there's been some hurt that has been experienced that I know of. This is the way in which that hurt got represented, meaning this is how that person behaved in reference to the hurt that they had carrying around um, with them throughout their lifetime. And this is the way in which that hurt that they never addressed hurt me. And from there, mm-hmm. we can then you know start doing the undoing process of healing some of those trauma wounds
0: now how does someone if they're looking to disrupt a behavior yet it is you know has been seen as normal and so they've just accepted it as a part of life you know as as opposed to something that could be changed how would a person in your guidance Recognize and make a distinction between something that is quote unquote normal but actually changeable just because they have to get used to it versus something that truly is normal and baseline and unchangeable?
1: I believe that a lot of the information is held in our bodies. And that's why I integrate body-based methods and somatic and holistic practices into my work because very often our bodies tell us when something doesn't feel right, when people don't feel safe to us, when environments feel off. And we tend to shrug off that point of data. But remember what we've said so far, like our bodies have these remembrances. They have memory points that try and help us to not go in the direction of danger or to at least have an understanding of when something just doesn't feel right. And many times, whenever I have conversations with folks, they would start going back, you know, kind of into their childhood and say, you know what, this has been something that has been like the case for every single person that I I know that's my age and every person that I know that's in my community, but none of us felt good about it. Like you know, I, I know that it's probably more of a millennial uh, situation, or and maybe it doesn't, it isn't something that is experienced by every millennial. But in generations past, millennial and beyond, there have been a normalization of, you know, um, carceral punishment um, upon. I'll backtrack. There has been like a normalization of of families utilizing items to punish children physically and change their behavior. Mm -hmm. And, And so because it was so normal and normalized, it was never something that on a more global scale had been contested until recently, right? Like now we have systems in place to protect children. It doesn't always work, but we do have them in place in in many areas of the world. But every child just believed that, you know, if I do something bad, there's retribution that is corporal and it's physical and it, you know, I will be hurt physically and that is what I deserve. And then there's internalized messages around that. Um, And so like when when we backtrack to when we were kids, we can remember that that didn't feel good, even though if it, it was the normal thing that you heard every parent did to their child, right? And so it's mm-hmm. things like that, that we, you know, there's ways in which, I know that's a little bit of an extreme um, example, but there are many instances where people can just go back into their childhood and say, like, that didn't feel good to my soul. I want to do things differently. And typically they start doing things differently from that point on as, as best as they could.
0: Yeah. No, that's so smart to just remind people to pay attention to, you know, what arises in the body, you know, and you're so right. People do shrug that off. Like, so much. It's kind of hilarious when you think about it. It's like, oh, this is just 200,000 years of evolved <laughs> animal wisdom that's like, you know, wired into the foundation of my, of my brain. Uh, what, you know, let's, let's ignore that, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, so powerful. If you start mm-hmm. tuning into the nuances, even of what can arise in any situation, it's like this extra guidance system that is telling you this whole other view of the world that we're not taking in through, you know, if through intellectual processing, like we generally process, or even like a kind of a somatic sense of things, you know, this, this other thing is, is so, so powerful. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, whenever Whenever someone starts to recognize one of those things, then what would they do? If they feel something that feels off, how would they explore that and start to disrupt you know, the conditioned responses around that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I actually work um, in an opposite direction with folks. I actually start the process of working with folks and even in the writing in the book the process is structured this way because it's similar to my work and it's to actually um, settle the nervous system prior to even getting into the digging work like i don't open up an intergenerational trauma tree i have an intergenerational trauma healing assessment that's very comprehensive and it's like almost 40 questions uh, that's in the book but i also take my clients through and we unearth a lot of the details that are going to be pertinent to the healing process. Um, We also go through an, an intergenerational way of looking at the adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs. So all of that is a part of the data collection or digging process. And I don't believe that it's helpful to do all of that digging if what's going to happen is that we're gonna psychologically avoid and um, fade away. Meaning that we might dissociate because it could feel so unraveling and hurtful to uncover a lot of these details that eventually we're just gonna you know, not engage so what I do instead um, is that I, I engage people in the process of settling their nervous system first, and we do that for a number of weeks before we even start digging. And what that looks like is usually in my practice, I do sound bath meditations, and and I also guide folks through imagery based exercises and and help them, you know, integrate actual holistic practices into their day to day. So they're doing breath work, they're doing, you know, grounding meditations, progressive muscle relaxation to really get the tension out of the body. They're doing, you know, EFT tapping to really tap into meridian points. And like, there's so many other aspects of holistic medicine that's integrated into the work that then helps them to absorb that and feel more settled as a general baseline so that then we can get into the digging work and they can feel present in their own storytelling and Beautiful. so uh, thank you <laughs> I think it's um, it's the most ethical and kind um, way that I have found I could do this work so that's what I what I've aimed for beyond that you know we start applying and integrating the work meaning that what we dug up we start then bringing back into their day-to-day circumstances because they come up. Right. They'll have some sort of a a fight with their significant other. And all of a sudden we can see that some of those similar patterns of manipulation, of blaming, you know, like they start to sound very similar to what they heard back home. Mm-hmm. And, and so we start mapping out alternate ways to actually respond. And ways to actually settle their nervous system, even while they're still in a state of conflict so that they can respond from a a more connecting place than from a place of survival mode.
0: That's a really beautiful way to approach it because, you know, if someone isn't present and can't have a objective view on the information that they're, you know, that's arising inside of them, it's kind of just becomes noise then. You know, yes. they just sort of like refuel the thing, but that's not necessarily going to resolve anything, you know, being able to have context and have some just mindful space around it, you know, will, would allow someone to actually understand it more deeply and there'll be able to, you know, integrate or move forward or whatever, you know, release it. So that's a really beautiful way to approach. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I'm curious for you, you know, just looking at your background, what brought you into doing this work?
1: You know, I, I, like to say that the work itself found me. So therapy itself, um, was work that I had gone to actually my very first therapy session while I was still working in advertising in, in New York. And the therapist instantly said, I think you'd be a great therapist. And so our, our Sessions just became about me getting back into grad school, um, and and so that was somebody that was pushing me, not really knowing me all that well, but I think kind of just perhaps um, reading the psychological mindedness of my words, and. Beyond that, there was, um, you know, a lot of volunteer work that I was doing back in my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, on the weekends when I wasn't working. And a lot of that started looking a lot more like volunteer work in the mental health arena, because that's where the help was needed. Um, Working with the children that were um, unsheltered and, and, you know, sometimes they had actual programs for them and I would be a part of those programs. And so those things coincided and got me into this work, which I'm so grateful for because I love what I do. But then um, with the intergenerational piece, that just started coming up in the therapy room. Hmm. And there were so many layers that kept coming up. And I remember being in our clinic team meetings when I still worked at a hospital setting. I used to, um, I trained at and worked at um, Columbia Medical Center once I graduated. And our clinic team meetings had, uh, basically like psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and people would be talking about their respective um clients and the ways in which they may have felt a bit stuck in a session and needed some help and guidance from a colleague and i would just kind of listen in to the through line in all of these stories and time and again throughout the years We kept having people come in and say, well, you know, this person was in a domestic dispute and it left them depressed and that's why they're here. And their mother was also in a relationship that had domestic violence. And so was their grandfather, you know, and like and so we we kept saying these things, but not naming it. And I kept thinking like, why aren't we naming it if there's clearly a through line and why aren't people able to get out of these cycles through the generations? We even had sometimes in the clinic, we had um, one of my colleagues was actually working with the mother and uh, both adults. And I would be working with the adult child um, daughter. And wow. we, yeah, we would be in clinic team, you know, having these discussions and no one's really saying Okay, you know, something's happening here that is situated in trauma and is not being disrupted through the generations. And I just got really curious about that from a research standpoint and from a clinical standpoint. And and from there, you know, kind of all of this grew out of there.
0: Amazing, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, this is one of the things I ask on the show. That's why the show has a weird name. Um, you know, the idea is essentially sharing, you know, an, an insight that you had at some point that helped you see that the transition from, you know, before becoming a therapist and then becoming one was possible. Some experience or thought that really struck you that was kind of a turnkey moment where you thought, okay. Now this is why or how I'm going to go do this. And there are no rules here. And I'm sure that there are, there are many of those, but just to kind of offer a a blueprint that shows a pathway into that type of, you know, life growth and change.
1: Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people that I have come across that have, they have a je ne sais quoi, as they Mm -hmm. say, Like, you know, Mm -hmm. that. I think fits really, really well into, into a healing format and they just haven't tapped into it. Someone saw that in me. I didn't see it in myself at first. And, um, you know, even when I entered the field, I still entered it primarily from the perspective of being a researcher. And, and then I transitioned actually when I did my master's mostly in research and then I transitioned into the clinical role. And, I think it was for me, you know, uh, uh, when I actually saw that my communities, there were some disparities that needed to be addressed in my communities that um, I felt very compelled to, to try and at least chip away at those disparities. And eventually, you know, I, I found myself applying to schools, which is one thing that I think most people don't really kind of consider, like you know, applying to a breadth of schools. Um, I applied to places that were close to my family because I'm very family-bound and I wanted to stay local. And, you know, I I was very privileged in being able to get into Columbia University, but when I got in, I actually didn't even know what Columbia University was, interestingly (laughs) enough, whereas (laughs) many people pretty much know, you know, and I, Uh I actually... I actually had a mentor who told me, oh, no, you have to go to that one because I got into a few schools mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted to go to another one because they had a, a neuropsychology uh, track with a health focus. And I felt like that was more my, my thing, uh, whereas uh, at Columbia, they had a, a more social justice bend. And so it was, you know, uh, I think that there were people that really kind of saw the path um, before me and were able to like really kind of nudge me. So, I, you know, if people are looking for a path like this, I would say, you know, look for the, the folks that maybe have a little bit of an eye in um, and already know a thing or two, because I think that makes the path a little bit easier. Like my nephew wants to be a psychologist and I'm so grateful that I get a chance to, he's 16 and I, I get a chance to say, I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I know, I know, you know, how to orient you. I can guide you. I can introduce you to people like that brings me so much joy. It's such a legacy that I hold for him. And, and that's the case with people that, you know, are already even in their first careers and and want, you know, to maybe make the transition.
0: That's really cool. Also, I love that you've seen Colombia and you're like, "Wait, I said I wanted to stay close to home. I'm not going all <laughs> the way to Colombia for this." <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so what made you listen to the people that were nudging you and kind of guiding you in that direction? Because, you know, everyone people get advice from all around them, everyone in their lives. What was it that made you really hear that and follow through?
1: Well, it, when I heard them, I started feeling less anxious, and I thought that that was a clue mm. because I actually, like, I remember the moments when I was sitting with the possibility of not listening. I was actually having panic attacks um, and and really having trouble breathing. And when I finally like decided to, you know, listen and and start the process of the transition, I felt at ease. I felt calm, and I'm like, okay, this is really this is the decision. It's the right way to go.
0: Beautiful. More listening to the body.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So whenever I'd love to just dig into that real quick, like how how do you help people start to pay attention to their body? I I feel just so many people seem kind of I know disassociate isn't the right word. I mean that in kind of more of a vernacular sense, like people are disconnected, let's say from Mm -hmm. those more nuanced, deeper feelings, you know, how, how can people start to hear that a bit more closely and actually pay attention to it?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We definitely are in a disembodied society and it's a, it's a disservice that we have done to the people of this world, um, in, in not orienting the global community you know to listen to such a a critical part of our being but the first thing that I tend to do with folks is have gentle like really gentle body scans what that means is just that you know I I ask a person to sit with their breath the gentle breath and not you know any modifications to their breath no deep breathing just the breath and just noticing the breath and then transitioning their attention over to their head, neck, back, you know, chest area, stomach, pelvic area, legs, fingers and toes, right? And so like really just gently attending to the body. And I think that that's probably the safest and easiest segue into body work. It's a body scan but beyond that, when we start doing like more tangible body work, we start really sitting with the body in a deeper way, in a slower way. And then we start integrating actual practices that can help absolve some of the tension that the body is holding. I, I mm-hmm. particularly like for myself and in practice, progressive muscle relaxation. And especially, you know, during. A time when we're about to segue to sleep because it can actually release some of the tension that the muscles have held for the entirety of your day and help you to ease to sleep in a way that is way better than not doing it but but my you know the the best way that I have found that has has felt like um, it has been tolerable has been through a body scan.
0: Mm, beautiful and shout out to progressive muscle relaxation <laughs> that was one of the first things that whenever I was I think you know 16 or 17 I just happened to kind of figure out on my own mm-hmm. and just having a lot of anxiety and and trauma and things like that I would lay in my bed and just exhale and try and relax every muscle a little bit more and mm-hmm. breathe in but I started make like gamifying it where I was like let's see how much I can let go and relax the muscles. And whenever I feel like there's no more to relax, like even looking for something else, like a, a, a deeper layer, you know, and, uh, it just became like a fun thing where I would do it until eventually I feel like I was like floating in space, you know, wow.
1: <laughs> that's so beautiful. And you know, that that's the thing is that the, there's wisdom in our bodies that allows us to understand that. Like, for example, rocking, right. Rocking is another, uh, we call them like ventral vagal stimulation uh, practice or, you know, parasympathetic practice or mm-hmm. relaxation practice for short. And rocking can be seen in mothers, pet caregivers, right? Grandmothers, like whomever is rocking a child to sleep mm-hmm. and the child eventually feels relaxed enough to segue to sleep. It can be seen in individuals who operate in in the autism spectrum and how they rock themselves in order to self-soothe. And I myself, you know, found myself rocking as a way to self-soothe without realizing it until I realized, okay, that's what I'm doing because then I learned about it through my somatic training. And, you know, I think it's just, it's such a beautiful thing that we've had for as long as individuals have been rocking themselves naturally or as long as individuals have been rocking others in order to soothe them. And we haven't really applied the, we'll call it like neurobiological or neuropsychological context, right, to really kind of understand, well, what's happening inside of the nervous system that is then creating this relaxation response that is helping a person to then feel at ease.
0: Mm, That's amazing. It's so funny that you bring up rocking because literally yesterday I was at a coffee shop with a friend and another friend came up and from a distance started filming us. He was like jokingly kind of sneaking up on us, just organically sitting there. And then he posted this video online and whenever I saw it, I saw myself and whenever I noticed him approaching us, I'd noticed myself like started rocking a little bit. And I was like, that's so funny. I didn't realize that I did that, but it was because it was like integrating a new social dynamic. And so I was like, must've been regrounding or something like that. But I was like, I had never realized that before. So really funny that you bring that up. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, and like my ancestors, they rocked in rocking chairs in the Dominican republic like we you know that's a big thing there like rocking chairs are in every home Mm -hmm. and you know like for me like um the place where i i would like to transition to next year in terms of moving and living, I want to have my rocking chair. You know, I want to go back to those roots of like just having something that can actually help me to increase my ventral vagal stimulation and, and do so in a, in a gentle way. And in a way that, you know, is already built into my home. I think it's just like, it's, it's just, it's a free, beautiful thing that we can do for ourselves to help ourselves feel better. And most people don't even know that they don't have this tool, which is I, what I, when I say such a disservice, I think that's the disservice is that people don't know that holistic practices can actually help them to feel better. And in my opinion, and although I, I humbly, humbly say this, I really believe that it can really help us in this global mental health crisis that we're experiencing. Like we just, some of us really need to go back into an embodied self and into the practices that can really help us to shed some of that pain that we're carrying every day.
0: A hundred percent. It's like, that's what, one of the things about meditation, you know, it's like like, it, name one other thing on the entire planet in kind of the corporate landscape that we live in, where everything is commodified and sold and marketed. One thing that is promoted so heavily and talked about so much in culture that is free. Like nothing else is like that, you know, and there's, it's just a testament to how powerful that it is. It's like, it's available to anyone at any moment of the day and there's no, nothing, there's no subscription plan needed, you know?
1: Yeah. And the beautiful thing is that it's like, you know, it's the one thing, especially the breath and, and even meditation. They're the things that if we are in existence, if we're living at least the breath, we have the breath, we you know, it, it's it's a tool that is always with us, regardless of what our ability status is, regardless of what, you know, um, what kind of body mobility we might have, because I can recommend yoga to someone, but if, you know, if maybe they're, they have arthritic pain, yoga may not be accessible, but the breath always is. So it's always mm-hmm. present for each and every one of us. And it's probably out of a lot of the tools that we utilize in, you know, neuropsychiatry or or somatic practice, it is probably one of the most effective.
0: Yeah, I I don't doubt it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Big advocate, been doing it for about 25 years. Life-changing. That's beautiful. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, Mariel, thank you so much. It was so great to speak with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing and just, you know, sharing all this amazing healing and tools and insight with people. It's really wonderful. And uh, I just hope that your book um, goes far and wide and helps many people as well as, as well as you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me. I I appreciate you nerding out with me also (laughs) and, um, and your thoughtful questions and for holding space for me and for Break
0: the Cycle. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure.